Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty and this week I'm talking to Tom Harbour who is CEO of Learning with Parents. Now Tom and his organisation are in the space in between schools and parents but really thinking hard about what truly inclusive activities look like so that all parents can be doing some form of learning with their children. So lots of really interesting ideas and insights from Tom's work to think you, to help you think about parental engagement. As ever, the podcast is an opportunity to open up debates and discussions about topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth guidance on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello, today we are joined by Tom Harbour, who is founder and CEO of Learning With Parents. Hello, Tom. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit today about parental engagement um, and technology and the work that you do. So shall we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how the idea for Learning With Parents was born? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my name's Tom Harbour. I grew up in the sort of white, middle-class, privileged background um, and then went and did Teach First, um, which is a charity I I really believe in, in part because it throws people into communities that I think otherwise they might never never venture into. And that was definitely my case, um, working at a school in Leicester and met a lot of fantastic teachers, a lot of fantastic kids, and one who who really um, was a starting point of learning with parents in many ways was a boy called Tyler. And Tyler was always smiling. He was the sort of cheeky chap who it didn't matter whether he had um, turned up late for your class or not done his homework or whatever it was, you couldn't help but like him. And that was pretty much true for all the teachers, I think. And when Tyler was 16, he was stabbed to death. Um, And in the days and weeks and years after Tyler passed away, I found myself doing a lot of reflecting about his life, his potential, my own privilege and where I had come from. And I guess that set me on a professional mission to do what I could to address the sort of root causes of inequalities that um, led to Tyler's death. So inspired by Tyler, I did a master's in education focused on the root causes of educational inequality. And I was doing this as a teacher in my 20s, thinking that I could change it all within my own classroom. And there was this one report from the IFS that really hit home. And they found that by age 11, the disadvantage gap, which at that age is nine months, only 14% of that gap is related to what happens at school. Whereas 49% of that gap is related to what happens at home. So if we wanted to improve life chances of kids like Tyler, then we couldn't leave it all up to schools and I couldn't fix it all in my classroom. We had to look at what was happening at home and we had to think of education as bigger than just what happens at school. 
So that was the background to Learning with Parents. We set up Learning with Parents, a charity, um, and our vision is that every child is supported at home to fulfill their potential. It's a pretty lofty vision. We think it's hard, but we think that just because it's hard doesn't mean that someone shouldn't try and do it. Wow. So, uh, yeah, clearly, um, uh, you know, that had that the, the impact of, of Tyler's death, um, you, the, you know, obviously you felt there, um, but also how that spurred you you on to think about this, this, as you say, really, really tricky problem. And I think, you know, we we have quite a lot of conversations on the podcast about it. It feels like um, policy and society do expect schools to fix all the problems because they're a, um, a place where it's easier to sort of bring legislation uh, to bear. Uh, whereas what people do in their homes with their own families is 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 much harder to sort of pull that that lever. So it's it's really interesting to see that your your mission is to go out there and 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 try and support uh, young people to achieve their potential in in the home. Um, so wow, yes, really really um, interesting um, start there. And can you tell us a little bit about how how you began? and how, how it has developed and grown over time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I met Tyler when he was 12, and it fairly quickly became clear to me that that was in many ways too late. If we're going to tackle these really root causes of uh, inequality, we have to look younger. So I set up what was originally called Maths with Parents, working to support parental engagement with children aged 4 to 11, and we started with where we thought the problem was most acute, which was how on earth do you help your child with maths when you have no idea what the methods are that they're learning maths these days. And maths with parents then expanded to include English with parents. And um, we had maths and English activities for parents and children to do together, which were related to the curriculum and covered all year groups from four to 11. Then we got a comment from one of the families that we worked with, and it was a little boy called Isaac and his mum. And we'd sent them a, um, a game to play about number bonds. And Isaac's mum told us, Isaac and I really enjoyed playing this game about number bonds because Isaac sat on my lap, and I can't remember the last time he sat on my lap. And I read it and I thought, who cares about the number ones? Like, there's something, there's something bigger at stake here. Um, it's all about those interactions between parent and child. It's all about how do we get more kids sitting on their parents' lap? How do we get more of those positive conversations, games, activities happening? And I think we'd also started off with Maths for Parents, listening to lots of parents saying, oh, we don't understand long division. Can you explain long division to us? Or we don't know what... Um, what it means to find equal parts and why they're talking in this language. Can you explain that to us? And actually, perhaps upon reflection, our focus had been on how do we get those parents who are already doing a lot with their child to be able to do the rest? And we have this like 160 um, thing that we come back to. So we started off really supporting 60% of parents to be able to do 100% of supporting their child, whereas now our focus is entirely the other way around. Our focus is on how do we help 100% of parents 
to do if it's only 60% of the things with their child, then fine. How do we help every parent to play I Spy with their child? How do we help every parent to have those interactions like Isaac and his mum? And that's where our, um, that was a real pivot moment for us where we decided that that was our, our core focus. We transitioned from Maths with Parents, which was a limited company, into Learning with Parents, which is a registered charity. And then we also broadened our aims. So we now have three strands to our charity. The first is coming back to that vision, every child supported at home to fulfill their potential. It's so huge. We know we can't do it on our own. So the first is working with other organizations, collaboration to say, actually, we think that we need to come together and look at the best practice in supporting parents in low-income communities. We need to learn from each other. We need to learn from the research and we need to get sharing that. So we run something called the Parental Engagement Forum, group of around 30 organizations from large Save the Children type organizations down to small organizations working locally and deeply in communities. Um, and we lead the Fair Education Alliance's work around parental engagement. So that's the first strand. The second strand is our school programs. So we currently support around 20,000 families across the UK um, to have to be motivated and empowered uh, to have these really positive interactions at home with their children. We want it to be long-term sustained engagement over time. So our approach is to effectively replace traditional primary school homework with opportunities for parents and children to have those interactions together at home. And then the third strand of our work is new since COVID. And that is that we see a lot of organizations who work with lots of parents, but don't have an explicit focus on those facing the biggest barriers. And so we see our role as supporting them, perhaps through our content, perhaps through our platform, or perhaps through our expertise or a combination of those, uh, to improve the practice that they're already doing, the great stuff they're already doing with lots and lots of families, but to make sure it's going above and beyond to reach those uh, families that we most need to be supporting. So an example of that is we're working with BBC Bite Size. Um, they supported about 4 million families through the pandemic, um, but we're helping them to really do everything they can to make sure those resources are inclusive and that they're reaching the families that they, they most want to. Great. So you, I can see that you, you know, as well as delivering yourself directly, um, you know, you, you're really thinking about a kind of strategic role in, in, in achieving this vision um, across the piece. And can we talk a bit about what what specifically you've you've learned about what makes parental engagement effective as a result of of the kind of actual work that you're doing with with parents i think what you're what you're what you're saying is actually if you if you find a way to make um materials accessible for for those that are finding it hardest to access you will actually just make good materials for everyone but i might just be putting words words or ideas into your mouth there <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I think um, the first thing I'd want to say is just about vocabulary. So schools and um, researchers, teachers, school leaders um, often use parental involvement and parental engagement interchangeably. And actually in the research, it's hard to disentangle them. And there are some papers explicitly about it. A language we're trying to encourage is splitting parental involvement in schooling, which is do, does a parent come along to the parents' evening? Do they come along to the phonics workshop and sports day? Parental involvement in schooling, separate to parental engagement in children's learning. 
and that is the interaction between parent and child, the reading to your child at home. Um, and what we know is the thing that directly influences the child's life chances is the engagement in the child's learning. But often we can get stuck at the parental involvement in schooling. Parental involvement in schooling is a really positive thing. It builds strong school communities. There's lots of evidence of that. But if you want to impact the child, you have to see how it transitions into engagement in children's learning. So, sorry. No, I was just going to ask there, but presumably um, often the, the method that you choose to involve parents in, you know, maybe some of those more admin and uh, aspects of, of, of schooling, like, uh, you know, today's the day you've given this money or um, wear your PE kit or whatever, are also the channels that sometimes are being used for in- engagement. And if people have kind of switched off to some of those kind of communication platforms or find them harder to access, you've got a barrier to the engagement. Potentially. I think my main reason for highlighting the point is that the the overall objective should be the engagement mm. in learning in the vast majority of instances. If, you're, if your objective is to get your kids' school lunches paid for, then that's an involvement in schooling thing and you can mm-hmm. have that and that's the end of it. But if you engage, your objective is the best for the child, then you have to have the focus on the engagement in learning and having a parent coffee morning isn't enough to do that. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say we had a parent coffee morning. If that parent coffee morning has a knock-on effect on how those parents or teachers are interacting with that child, then great, that now has an impact on the child. But in and of itself, is it having an impact on the child is, is the challenge. Um, so coming back to your question, how do we encourage engagement? I think there's, or what does effective parental engagement look like? In our eyes, there's sort of three steps to it. So first of all, you've got to motivate and empower families to access the content, whatever it is. So if it's a book, then you've got to make sure that book is getting home effectively and that the parent is feeling like they're able to pick it up and read it with their child. You've got to get to that point that they are opening the book, not just that they're receiving it at home. Um, This is particularly speaking to resource banks. During the pandemic, hundreds of resource banks sprung up where parents, if they wanted to, could proactively go out and find any sort of games that they could do with their child. But are all parents actively going around looking on the internet for those, or do we have to do something to encourage them onto it? So the first step's all around that like motivation uh, piece. How do we get the parents to the content? The second strand is about once they're there, is the content inclusive? So we have through our materials this concept of going online to go offline. So parents through their phone watch a short video that explains the terminology and um, the topic that they might not understand. And then they get instructions to do some activities together, but those activities are offline. We think that that makes it more inclusive because we're saying, don't worry if you have a maths level of a seven-year-old and you don't understand this eight-year-old maths, we can teach you it and we can get you there to the point that you can support your child with it. Um, But what that activity is, is then also really important. So to give you an example, your child's been learning about quarters at school and they're in year one. Instead of getting a worksheet saying what's a quarter of 12, we'd give you a little video that explains um, four equal parts and the uh, language around it. But then we'd give you an activity like get your child's four favorite teddy bears, 
and get a pile of pasta and let's have a little teddy bears picnic where we um you know distribute it evenly and we make sure that um it's shared equally between the four teddies it's exploring fractions but in a fun hands-on way the question is is that an inclusive activity well probably most families have four teddies or for the things they could use as placeholders for teddies do all families have pieces of pasta well lots of families may have pasta because they've been to the food bank and they've got some pasta but do they want to be putting it on the floor and handling it but therefore not eating it there's some cultures in which handling your food and not eating it is frowned upon so maybe pasta isn't the solution so instead of pasta can we say well go into your garden and get some pebbles and bring those and distribute those between teddy bears but are you living in a you know, high-rise flat without a garden, without access? Or is it even just raining today and you can't go outside and get some pebbles? What are you using for that act activity? And this is where we spend a lot of time like tearing ourselves apart into the inclusive inclusivity of the activities. And if you're not doing that hard work, then I think the natural, um, the natural instinct that you might have to say, well, just get some teddy bears and some pasta, might be excluding those families that you most want to and excluding them at the point that they've been motivated they've come along they've wanted to do it and then the resources have stopped them so that inclusivity is a really important second thing and then thirdly so you've motivated the parents to get there you've made it inclusive so they can do the activity but thirdly how do you know if they've done it what's the monitoring that means you can actually evaluate how your free school meal children are playing games at home versus non-free school meal, that sort of thing. Parent surveys are really problematic because ask a parent a question which comes across a little bit like, are you a good parent? And, you know, <laughs> with parents ourselves, we're going to say, yes, we're good parents. And so Parent surveys are really, really tricky to do right. And also who you're getting the parent surveys back from, is it a representative samples, et cetera, et cetera. But tech allows you to see, these are the parents that are clicking and watching the videos. These are the parents that are clicking on the activities. And after they played the activities on our site, they leave comments about how it went and they upload photos to go back to the class teachers. And suddenly, like last year, we had 300,000 comments left by parents and kids that have played our games, 30,000 photos uploaded. Suddenly, we have this wealth of information about, like, this is how they're doing. They're rating them between one and five stars. We know if they're enjoying them or not. We know when they're doing them. We can, you know, understand the comments. And teachers suddenly have this insight into what's happening at home. And we then report back to the school every term. And we're like, this is your engagement from your free school meal kids. This is your engagement from your non-free school meal kids. How close is that gap? Who's you know, who's um, needing more support and who's already sort of flying with this stuff. And I think only with that last step of monitoring, can you hope to go back and improve how you're doing the motivating and how you're doing the inclusivity steps. Wow. That's, yeah, fascinating to think about the kind of richness of information, um, you know, like you say, beyond do they understand quarters, that you're getting with some of that feedback about about you know young you know children's disposition to learning and what's working for them well and inspiring them and motivating and that they're interested in beyond beyond the kind of the basic of of, of the actual activity itself it must be absolutely and, fascinating. And very simply, we have a task which uh, one of my colleagues does, which is to look at the one star rated activities where parents have said we didn't enjoy it. And to say, why was it? And then they tell us it was raining, so I couldn't go outside and get any pebbles. 
And then we can be like, well, wait a minute, this isn't inclusive. We need to improve this activity. And so that feedback loop can be really quick once mm. you start to get um, that amount of, of feedback coming back in instant time. We also, so, so we're using all this data to try and narrow that gap in terms of usage between free school meal and non-free school meal. When I started off Maths with Parents, um, we didn't really have any of the other stuff in place, but we we were able to monitor the, the gap in usage. And we saw that non-free school meal kids were doing about half as many activities as their more affluent peers on average. Um, so it was, it was around 50%. Now we put more things in place to support those kids in particular, and it's around 80%. So we've closed the gap, mm. but there is still a gap. And what can we do to, to improve it? Um, one of the things we, we work with a group at the University of Chicago called the Behavioral Insights and Parenting Lab. And they're really interesting to us because they use behavioral insights, but they also focused on parents facing poverty and um, particular behavioral habits for, for those families. And they looked at half a million activities that were um, played on our, on our website. And on average, children eligible for free school meals are playing those activities 30 minutes later in the day than their more affluent peers. Why is that? At the moment, we don't yet know. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Like potentially, we could text those families 30 minutes later um, with their with their nudge message. Potentially, we are doing something in our school day that assumes that children are doing it at a certain time, but actually your free school meal kids are, are shifted slightly later. Like there's so much to be um, looked into. The other or another angle they looked at was when parents, so when teachers are setting homework and when children are doing it. And what we found was teachers often set homework on Mondays or Fridays, but no child does a homework on a Friday. Like, why would you? It's a Friday. Most of the parent-child interactions, the vast majority of them, were taking place on Sunday afternoon, which makes total sense. But it means you're getting a letter on a Monday from your teacher saying, do your homework, and then it's Sunday afternoon by the time you're sitting down to do it. Is that the most impactful? Or can we change that around so that the messages and the nudges are going out on Sunday afternoon and that we're, we're doing better for those families that face the biggest barriers? Yes. And yeah, like you say, really interesting once you start to have access to this, this data, even little things like, yeah, the, the time that the sessions uh, are happening can can start to tell you about about how to encourage more, more people to complete those tasks. And you, you must have done a lot of research and had a lot of conversations with schools in sort of designing your activities and your your platform. What would you say in your experience? What do schools say about about why they find it hard to um, work with parents and in your kind of focus groups and conversations with with parents why do they find it hard to engage with their children's learning and and schools so we first looked at schools as the perfect partner because we're hope we're hoping to reach families and kids schools have access to the child and no parent will ever do anything for me or for you or for the class teacher they do it for their child and so we thought that in some ways schools are that absolute perfect partner but in some ways schools are also the worst partner for us because if you're a parent and you've had an awful experience at that same school perhaps then 
you'd much rather hear something through your local church or mosque or wherever else it's coming through than you would from your school. And so there's this interesting dynamic. In some ways, they're the perfect partner for reaching parents. In some ways, they're they're almost uh, the hardest the hardest place to to reach them. Um, I think for schools, the challenges are firstly that it's seen as really hard um, influencing what happens at home, and it is hard. Like I said it at the top, we as a charity exist because no one existed in that space, and we think that's because everyone said, "Look, it's too hard to influence what happens at home." Like you said, you can influence what happens at school, so it's it's seen as hard. Secondly, it's difficult to prioritize. When I'm a class teacher, I've got safeguarding top of my list i've got what i'm teaching next what i'm teaching next week like ofsted all these other priorities and then homework or parents they're all down there and the only time they obviously rise to the top are when there's significant issues which leads to that traditional thing of only reaching out to parents about negative things because there's an issue that means you need to reach out um i think there's other challenges around you know, I was a, a white middle class um, teacher teaching in a school that was 85% Gujarati speaking. Like, there are real issues there about are the teachers representative of communities? Do they understand the communities that they're working in? Uh, are there language barriers, etc.? Often in schools, the best people to be engaging with parents may not be the class teachers. There can be um, teaching assistants that are more likely to come from the communities that the schools represent. There can be um, like receptionists, I think have a really interesting role. Often a parent's main interaction with the school will be with the receptionist or the front of house. Like what training are we giving the receptionists and how are we supporting them in, in working with them, um, with parents. Um, but I think to sort of illustrate the um, importance of schools prioritizing parents, we heard a story of one of the schools we work with um, who the teachers had um, sealed off the playground in the morning when the kids came in and there was sort of emergency tape all around and there was a spaceship that had crash landed in the, in the space, in the playground. There was smoke coming out and there was this egg and the kid, uh, I think it was a year one class and um, this year one kid goes up to his dad. So the parents and um, children walk on for the morning and then see all this. Um, goes up to his dad and says, "Dad, dad, there's there's an alien. There's an alien in our playground." And the dad turns to him and says, "Well, it's not real, is it?" And the teacher's plan was to go inside and do creative writing about this alien that has crashed in. The playground. She totally had the kids, but she hadn't mentioned it to any of the parents. And it doesn't matter at that point as a school how convincing you make your playground, how well you introduce the creative writing. You've lost that little kid because that little kid looks up to two people in life. It looks up to a parent figure and looks up to a teacher figure. And if you haven't got one of those on side, then it can totally undermine what's happening. And that was explicit, and the teachers saw that happen. But how often is that happening behind closed doors where you don't see it? So I think it, there's sort of a, an anecdote for why actually schools can't do it on their own. They, they do have to prioritize this work. Um, in terms of for parents, every parent wants the best for their child. And that sounds like a statement doesn't need to be said, but, um, but does it, it, it always comes, comes up. 
but what we know is that schools can be an incredibly scary place. We've mentioned, you know, if you've had your own bad experiences, etc. But let's think about the power dynamics that happen between a parent and a teacher. So you go in as a parent to a phonics workshop and it's one of your first interactions, perhaps like reception, um, year one, you're going into to a parent's evening. What do you do? You probably sat down in a classroom on seats made for a five-year-old and you're in rows behind the desks and at the front is a teacher who teaches you the whole year's worth of phonics or the whole year's worth of maths in about 20 minutes and then off you go again. If you've come into that school building scared of your own experiences of school, which was however many years ago, it's all coming flooding back. Even parents' evenings, like as a teacher, I got the opportunity to say, this is what I'm hoping for your child. This is what I want them to be by the end of the year. This is what they're good at. This is what X, Y, Z. Never had the opportunity for the parent to say, actually, my hope for my child is this. This is what my child is really good at. This is what my child struggles with. That space was never really given. And we have a sort of motto that teachers are experts in the curriculum, in the pedagogy, in the subject knowledge of how to teach kids new content. But parents are experts in their child. And is that really taken into account in that, uh, in that power imbalance? Um, I think also when we're thinking about some of the most marginalized parents, there's, there's a shared priority with the school in terms of wanting the best for the child, but they can feel like there are different priorities so to take, take an example, we work with a group of refugee and asylum seeker parents in Coventry, and we talked to them about reading with their child and said, what do you most care about in terms of reading with your child? What's most important to you? And they talked about Bible stories, and they talked about stories from their home cultures that were spoken word stories and that they passed on. And then we asked the question effectively, what does school care most about? And the school cared most about had they read Biff, Chip and Kipper and whatever the leveled reading program was. And then we asked the parents, and which one do you think is most important? Like objectively most important for your child? And they said, Biff, Chip and Kipper and the leveled reading program. That's what the school is saying is important. So that's what must be important, even though what we really value are these Bible stories and these stories from our homeland, this spoken word narrative. And it felt like there's such a missed opportunity there to align this wealth of, um, of literary creativity, etc., that's coming from the home and is wanting to flow by sticking these level readers and this is what the school wants you to do and never having the opportunity to ask the parents Actually, what do you value about your child's reading? What do you value about how your child uh, develops their literacy? Yeah, as you say, some some big big questions there, and you know, you you you're kind of existing in that in that space between you know building building a bridge between between the parents and and the school in a way with with less of an agenda um i guess um it, it, in between which is really fascinating and and i'm interested to know as you know a parent 
a parent yourself and you know as you became a parent has it has it made you think differently than you did when you were a teacher yeah it's a really interesting question my my daughter is currently only nine months old um so my interaction with schools has been has been limited to date um but i did notice um from an early age health visitors would refer to me as and my wife as mum and dad and i saw a parenting survey um where they said how do teachers call you and they said mum and dad and said how would you like to be known and they were like well, by my name <laughs> and you know i'm tom in any other scenario why am i just dad now why why is it not worth me having a name and putting something to that I understand as a school, you have, you know, a thousand pupils and are you knowing all those names, let alone knowing the uh, parent names that go with them. But um, that was the first interaction where I was like, yeah, that is disempowering. And actually, you know, I, I would like to, uh, to have my status here just promoted by something as simple as using my name. Um, I think I'll see her over the next few years, right? Like as my child goes, starts going to school, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, really interested to know a little bit more about some of the schools that you work with and 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 how you support them. Are there any maybe examples or some more stories that you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. I guess our approach, as I've said, is around replacing homework to um, encourage these interactions between parents and children to happen at home. And particularly we're interested in who are the families that aren't already doing that, that we can um, start on that journey. And our approach for schools is, is sort of twofold. One bit I've already mentioned around behavioral nudges and we send the right text message to the right parent at the right time, that sort of thing to really maximize engagement. But the other thing is about teacher training. We know that teachers really need to build positive relationships. There are parents who will, will never get there um, without that interaction between the, the teacher and the parent. And that's a really important side to our work as well. Um, as an example, a um, school in Doncaster that we worked with told us about a, a mum who, like I said earlier, she had been to this same school when she was you know, five to 11. Um, it was her primary school. She lived in that community and she was really anxious of the school building. So they as a school hadn't met her as a mum. They had only met her as a child. And they sent home the learning with parents um, stuff through the child. And the teacher was able to see that that mum and her son were playing the teddy bear picnic activities at home behind closed doors. They could see, she wasn't leaving comments, she wasn't leaving photos, wasn't going back to say um, the class teacher. I think that interaction was still strained and, and difficult for her, but they could see that she was logging on regularly, she was doing the games when they were set and um, her child was having them at home. And that was one of the powers of like meeting parents where they're at, 
coming through on their mobile phone with a text message and a little video they can watch on their phone using their 4G and then activities using just stuff around them, really inclusive, but also motivating the child. So the child wants to be doing this stuff. It's fun, it's not a chore. And actually that was working for that parent. It was on her terms and she could engage. And the school said that they were going to use it as an opportunity to reach out to that parent and say, hey, we've seen that you had a teddy bear picnic. How did it go? Like, so pleased to see you playing the teddy bear picnic. And it was a way in, which wasn't your child's being naughty or whatever the, the sort of traditional things were. So I just really like that as a story because I think it shows that tech has that potential to penetrate into homes, particularly if we build it as inclusive from the ground up. Um, we make sure it's, it's designed around those families. Um, has a way to have an impact that I don't really believe that any other homework would have penetrated in the same way. Um, and do you do you work with schools um, across across the country? Obviously, you're you're focused on primary primary schools. Can you give us a feel for that? Yeah, absolutely. So we currently only work with eighty five primary schools. Our approach has been slow and steady because we are always anxious that if you have a program a homework program that is half-baked then what you end up is the most affluent the parents with the most social capital picking it up and running with it and the ones you most want to support not and you can potentially arguably widen the gap through that activity so we really haven't scaled we've been focused on impact um theory of change, behavioral insights, um, that sort of thing. And then through COVID, we had um, huge amounts of extra support. And suddenly this thing that we were shouting about and no one else seemed to be, suddenly everyone else was shouting about as well. And so we now have this platform that we're really chuffed with and we think really has um, meaningful impact with those families that are, um, you know, previously least likely to engage. And so we're now looking at who are we partnering with that are scaling this? How are we getting that impact um, nationwide? Because it's tech, we do already work across the whole country, um, but only small numbers of schools in each place and just little bits of pockets of word of mouth. Um, so now our next um, program is how are we scaling? How are we scaling to reach um, the families? Because only by working at scale, will we drive the sort of change that we want to drive and it's interesting that your that your solution is as you say is kind of um part part technology because obviously it has you know the ability to text message and videos and and track what people are doing but that the activities themselves are very much kind of real real world real life um activities so that 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 that's a sort of particular difference there and obviously we've we've heard a lot during during lockdowns particularly about access to um to 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 wi-fi to devices and a lot of these things being you know increasing the, the barrier and the the disadvantaged gap um so i just wondered if you had uh, finally any kind of reflections on kind of what the impact of 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 lockdowns has been on on parental engagement and and you know and any kind of changes that you've made to to, to your work and, and things that you've learned during the pandemic yeah absolutely so um 
I think we the the device poverty was a massive issue during the pandemic, and I understand why, but I also think it hid something deeper, which is you can give a child a device, but do they use it? You can give a parent a device, do they use it? Um, and we weren't really impacted by that because our activities are mostly accessed by parents on their phones. And like you say, they're online to go offline. They spend a couple of minutes reading the activity and then the time is spent offline. So it wasn't really a challenge for us. Um, but I also think it, it stole so much of the attention and psyche of does everyone get a device? But it's limited, right? There's there's more than just they have a device in their hand. You can give a child a book, but how do you make them read it? Whatever the expression is. Um, I think for us, the pandemic was clearly an awful time for so many of the families that we worked with, so many of the schools and teachers, and what a tough time to be be a teacher over the last couple of years. Um, the thing it did for parental engagement, though, was it it placed it on the map, and suddenly people couldn't help but see that actually parents have a really crucial role in their children's education. And so schools who we were speaking to who used to say they didn't prioritise this area now have parental engagement leads in ways that they didn't before and now really focused in on it. Um, that also stands for organisations. So people like BBC Bite Size, would we have got a um, partnership with them in the years before COVID? I'm not sure. Was it a big enough focus for them? Um, Bite Size was mostly a student um, revision tool. They hadn't really thought about parents as an audience. There's so many of these organisations that are now looking at parental engagement. But what we need to keep up is the looking at the disadvantage gap as well and looking at parents through the light of disadvantage. So I think there's a real opportunity to build back better here. But I think. Um, it's fraught with danger. The conversation can go two ways. The conversation can go with, oh, we gave parents the chance during COVID and actually the gap just widened and uh, and that's that. Or here's a new renewed focus on how we support um, parents, how we see education as broader than just schooling. Yeah, and as you say, it's a, it's a really important point around the kind of equality because yeah i feel like it during the pandemic you, know, you see lots of lists of here are websites that you can go to if you want kind of more resources for your child and you know a lot of suppliers that would usually be kind of promoting their products to schools opening up an opportunity for parents to access kind of resources directly and and as you say um if you're giving that list of 20 things that you know the people who 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 can access them and have the the time and the the resources to do so will and you know other people people won't but you'll feel like box ticked we gave 20 websites where they could find some things to do um this is one of the risks that we see as a charity is that now going out to schools previously they weren't really doing anything with parents in most senses whereas now they they often have a way of getting stuff out to parents so they can use some combination of teams and some other app and um whatever it else is to get some homework or some worksheet out to parents is it impactful is it impactful with those most disadvantaged families not necessarily but is that box ticked absolutely because it had to be and is our cell now potentially a little bit harder because we're speaking to schools where they already have some sort of solution in place and we're having to speak about the 
impact of the program and the disadvantage primarily because that's the differentiator whereas previously actually just working with the parents and focusing on it was a differentiator as you say it's just so crucial to kind of meet meet those parents where they're at and we will we will share some some links to to the work that you do but is there any kind of particular message that you'd like to leave our listeners with in closing i think it comes back to the point you just made about meeting parents where they're at we so often hear the term hard to reach parents and we have this belief that no parent walks around their life thinking of themselves as hard to reach but we have to think of ourselves as a school are we giving them the safe space that they need to be able to engage and primarily to be able to engage with their child. Some some wise words to end on there. And thank you so much, Tom, for taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.